Well, that's phenomenal. So welcome, guys, uh, to uh, Grace and to Life Hacks. We're finishing a series this weekend that we've called Life Hacks, and through the series, what we've been doing is looking at these eight statements that Jesus made and uh, digging at them, trying to get kind of the, the context, the background, what they mean uh, in conjunction with the rest of Scripture. And we find a lot of meaning in them. And we said that's part of the fun of Jesus' teaching is because he is our creator and our God, anything he says is very profound and it profoundly impacts us. So it impacts us into the levels of our soul all the way up to our family room because that truth cuts through all the stratas of our humanity. And so we've been doing that, looking at it. And then after we, uh, we dig into one or two of those statements, we turn them into uh, life hack turn into five useful things Jesus is teaching us. So I put the five useful things in your notes just as a kind of a way of review, and so you can uh, latch onto those. If you want to listen to the whole conversation, go out to our website graceohio.org, and you can uh, listen to the podcast at double the speed, apparently, uh, or watch it there, and uh, you can be kind of filled in on all those uh, that backstory and those those details. Uh, this weekend, what I want to do is I want to take uh, the eight statements, and I want to put more skin on them. So Jesus gives this illustration. We're going to look at it in a minute here. And what he does is he basically brings those eight statements into a relational context. And that's where those statements are going to show up for us, right? So uh, there's always our connection with God. Our connection with God, 99% of the time, involves people somehow. And so that's why the two greatest commandments are so connected, right? So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, because people is what spurs us to God and et cetera. And so I want to I be sure to attach these statements into a relational context, which is where you and I are going to experience them uh, the most. But let's, let's just look at the eight statements again, make sure we're on the same page. So open your Bibles up if you got them to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 677, and the Bible's in the chairs. And if you're electronic... Uh, we use the U version app, Y-O-U version, and uh, you can open that up, hit live, and our zip code is 44333, and uh, the notes and everything will be right there. You can look at those, okay? So these are the eight statements. Matthew chapter 5, start with verse 3. This is what we've been looking at. Jesus said this, blessed. That word blessed is the same word that we use for happy in the original language. So blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus gives these statements. We've learned that these statements really cut against the grain of our humanity, right? It's like petting the cat backwards. So it's, it's going to cause us to move in a direction that we would not normally move, but it's going to give us a different set of results. And Jesus says, it's actually the things that are going to lead you to happiness and peace for your soul, but they're counterintuitive to what you would normally understand, okay? So those eight statements. Now, there's another part of the Bible here I want us to go to, and we're going to look at these, and I'm going to show you how these eight statements play out in these relationships. So this illustration, it's a parable is the Bible word for it, but it's an illustration. 
that Jesus came up with. And in the illustration, there, there's three characters in the illustration. So there's a, a younger brother, and he plays the part of the sinner, okay? There's the father who is representative of God. And then there's the older brother <clears throat> who, for the, the sake of our conversation today, is going to play the part of the Christ follower. When Jesus was teaching this originally, the older brother was played by the nation of Israel or the ancient Jewish people. But we're going to draw application from it. So we're going to let that stand for the Christ follower in our application today. Okay? So you have the younger brother, the father, and the older brother. And I want to show you how these relationships connect with each other and how the eight statements need to be woven through this to bring a correct, correct, uh, correct uh, relationship with God. And then that feeds into our, our right connection with each other. So go to the right in your Bible. And I keep your thumb there in Matthew chapter 5 because we're going to flip back and forth a bunch today. Okay, but go to the right in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, page 730. Keep your thumb there in Matthew because we're going we're gonna to bounce back and forth a ton. And let's start to unpack this. We're going to start with the younger brother and then we'll kind of work our way through. It's kind of a lot of reading, but we'll kind of work our way through it. And I'll show you how these eight statements show up in a relationship and what it takes to, uh, to make that work. Okay, so verse 11, chapter 15, <clears throat> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got uh, together all that he had. And he set out for a dis- uh, distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father... I've sinned against you and against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So the younger son goes to his father and, and you, you have to kind of put it in the cultural context. I don't, I don't want to go too deep into it uh, this weekend. But in essence, what he says to his father is, I wish you were dead Uh, You have something that I want. I want my inheritance. I wish you were dead. Can you just give me my money now so I don't have to wait around for you to die? And so he goes to his father. The father does that, gives him a third. It's it's what it would have been, a third of all that he owned. The son takes it and he squanders it. And wild living, there's a famine. He's got no more money. He winds up feeding pigs in the pig pen. He's so hungry that he longs to eat the pig food and people won't even give him that, okay? And what this son does, he breaks down his relationship with his father and the father is representative of God. So the, the son looks at the father, the son is the sinner. And the Bible says this is every human being, right? We are by nature sinners. We are not by nature good people, we're by nature bad people. Sin is what comes instinctually to us. So nobody ever taught us to lie. Nobody ever taught us to be selfish. We do that by instinct. It's our nature, okay? 
So he's a sinner. He's walking away from God, and he's looking at God in a very self-centered, self-sufficient way. God, you have what I want. Give it to me. Do what I want you to do so that I can go live independently from you. I need money. Give me what I want. And I'm going to take what you give me and I'm going to, I'm going to cause myself then to be self-sufficient. Now I can live the way that I want to live because happiness is being free of God. Happiness is God is, you know, the cosmic Santa Claus, just give me what I want and then I can go do what I want. Happiness is life over here, engaging in all forms of moral uh, filth. That's what I want to do. God, just make all that happen for me. I'm going to go over here. And in a self-centered, self-sufficient way, he breaks relationship with God and goes into rebellion. And this is, this is every human being, okay? All have sinned, and we all do this to God. Runs out of money, he's in the pigsty, he's starving to death. And then you start to see these eight statements play out. So something happens in the pigsty. He's covered in the mud, he's covered in the filth, he's, his life is gross spiritually, morally. I love verse 17. When he came to his senses, so he's buried in the pig junk over here, right? He wakes up, what am I doing? What am I doing, right? My father, the relationship I'm supposed to be in, my father's servants live better than I live. They have enough food at least, and they're servants. What am I doing? I have to get out of the situation that I am in. Now, that moment of awareness is the birthing of repentance. It's the birthing of repentance. That's what repentance is. Repentance just means this. It means I'm walking away from God, and repentance literally means to turn around. So I'm walking away from God. I came to my senses. What am I doing? Turn around. I'm going to start moving toward God now. Okay? So he comes to his senses, wakes up, and starts to move toward God, wanting to reestablish this relationship that he has broken. But what is needed for that to happen? The eight statements are needed. Okay? So look at it. Verse 17. He came to his senses. How many of my father's hired servants have uh, food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, that's repentance. I'm going to start moving toward my father. Ready? I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now, told you, keep your thumb there. Go back over to Matthew chapter 5. Okay? Matthew chapter 5. What is happening here? When he wakes up and says, I'm going to go to my father, or he begins kind of the process of repentance, the very first element of repentance is being poor in spirit. So being poor in spirit simply means this. It's recognizing the reality that I am completely dependent upon God. The theological concept of it is called total depravity. I am by nature a sinner. I, every time I get away from God, I'm going to wind up in the pig pen. I cannot save myself. I cannot fix myself. I cannot. I believe the lie that happiness was life away from God. 
And Jesus says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. Happiness is realizing my dependency on God. Come to my senses. I'm going to go back to my father. I need God. So the younger brother locks on to the first statement. I'm going, I'm going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to humble myself and repent, go back to my father. And then the second statement comes in, verse four of chapter five of Matthew. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So the idea of mourning is, it's those who mourn because of the relational fissure that they have caused in their interaction with God. So I moved to the pig pen. I said, God, just give me what I want. I want to do what I want. God didn't move. God didn't sentence me to the pig pen. God didn't give me my money and tell me to get out of here. I did all that. So you see his poverty of spirit. I'm going to go back to my father. And then mourning. Go back over to Luke 15. I will set out and go back to my father and I will say, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. Father, I did this. My life is a mess because I moved away from you. My life is a mess because I was self-centered, because I was self-sufficient. You didn't do this. I'm responsible for it. And I grieve this distance that I've caused in our relationship. I'm repenting. I'm going back to you, poor spirit. I'm going back to you, mourning, because I hate this fissure that's between us. I want it to be different. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Made me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. What is that? That is the idea of him hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When we talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we're talking about our instincts, what defines us. I thought happiness was me being defined by my flesh. I thought if I fed my body and I lived wild and I slept with whoever and I did whatever I wanted, that I was going to be happy because I'm totally free. And that worldlyism is what I longed for. It defined me. Now I've come to my senses. I need God. I grieve the distance between me and God. I'm going to go back to my father. I want to be defined and directed by my father. That's where happiness is going to be found. So you see the youngest son. And, and all of a sudden you can see like these statements playing out in his life, right? He walked away. What does it take to come back? Well, it takes the, the locking on these statements and kind of locking them into my life. It's going to be counter what I would logically think in my sin. But when I'm over here and I'm buried in the pig pen and I'm miserable, I don't have to stay here. I can turn around. I can repent, recognize my need for God, repair the relationship that I've caused the distance in and allow God to redefine me, renew my heart, transform my mind, right? So I'm now defined and directed by God. So you see these play out and that's, that's where we are. That's the beginning of kind of birthing a relationship with God or returning to the relationship that we were created to be in. Now, as you go on through the story here, then in Luke, the next character comes in. So Jesus brings in the father now, okay? So verse 20, look at it. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and his sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. When the son came to his senses, when he repented, when he was poor in spirit, mourning, hungry, thirsting for righteousness, he went to his father with what the Bible calls a broken and contrite heart. So we would say it this way, a repentant and humbled heart. I, I, I give up, right? I'm, I'm, I'm broken and I'm humbled. God, I'm going to go to you. And the Bible says this in Psalms 51, a broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not despise. So when he comes to his father with that heart, the father who is waiting and watching sees it, sees the heart, poor in spirit, mourning, hungry, thirsting, and runs to his son. He doesn't condemn his son. He gives compassion to his son because his son has positioned himself in such a way that he can return to relationship with his father. And this is a really, really big deal. When I go to God, when I confess my sins, the Bible says in John, that God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from unrighteousness. God is not out to get you. And one of the biggest reasons why we're afraid to come out of the pig pen is because we think, I'm going to drag my sorry rear end back to God. Maybe I can be a servant. Maybe I can be a slave. Maybe I can like kind of lick God's shoes and get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. We forget or we don't trust that God is not here to condemn us. He's here to save us. And when we come with him, to him with a broken, contrite heart, his response to us is predetermined. He delights in mercy. He's eager to forgive. And he will run out and greet the sinner. Okay? Now, it's a big deal. That's a really, really big deal. Because God loves and God embraces. And when we come to him, we will be received like the son was who had a broken and contrite heart. That's a, that's a really big caveat there. Had a broken contrite heart. So what did he receive? He received forgiveness from his father. He received, this is a huge one, restoration. So when the father says, hey, bring the ring, bring the sandals, bring the robe, kill the cow, right? What was he doing? He was restoring his son to his rightful place. The son came back and said, I'll be your servant. And the father looks at him and says, what are you talking about? You're my son. You, you are a joint heir with your brother. You are my child. This is where you were created to be. You have just come to your senses and remembered that. So when you come to me, I restore that in you. I give you back this place. I welcome you back into the family and you are forgiven and cleansed and I will bless you, right? 
celebrating that you've come to your senses and you've come home. So you have the younger son, who's the sinner, the rebellious one, who comes to his senses, poor in spirit, mourning, hunger and thirsty for righteousness, comes home. You have the father, and you see the heart of the father played out, <clears throat> delights in mercy, is eager to forgive. You come close to God, he'll come close to you, the Bible says. He runs out and he greets his son. And then you have the third character. And the third character is the older brother. So look at it. They're having a celebration. He was lost. Now he's found. So they begin to celebrate. Verse 25. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he is back safe and sound. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet never have you gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. The older brother comes in, sees the parte, right? This is what's going on. Your rebellious younger brother came home and it makes the older son angry. The older son, for purposes of application, is playing the part of the Christ follower. It's a very fascinating turn of events. In fact, the older son is actually the focal point of the story. So if, you, if you've grown up in church, going to Sunday school, stuff like that, you would know the story is the, the, the prodigal son and the focal point is the younger brother. Actually, that's just a label that we put in. That, that's actually not the point of the story. The focal point of the story is the older brother. If I was labeling this, I would call it the older self-righteous brother who had a really, really bad attitude and had to be corrected by his father. But that's a really long title, so they, they didn't ask me to put it in there, Right? But you put this, you take this parable and put it in the rest of what Jesus is talking about. His focus in this parable is the older brother. The older brother comes in, sees the younger brother being restored, forgiven, and, re and uh, reconnected, reestablished in his relationship with his father. Ready? The older brother becomes angry with, are you prepared? The father. His anger is with the father. I have been here this whole time. I have worked. I did not waste. That son of yours, I hear that phrase a lot at my house, by the way, I have five boys. That son of yours, right? He went, he does, I, you've given me, what are you doing? And the older brother is angry with the father because the father was not punitive in his response to the younger brother. The older brother wanted a pound of flesh. Hey, you know, let him be your servant. He's a diphthong. That's what he should be doing. Let, you gave him the ring too? The ring, dad, come on, right? He's a dingus. I can't believe you're doing that, right? I have been faithful. I did not go smoke, drink, and chew and date girls who do. He did all that. He became a Michigan fan. He's of the devil. What are you doing over here, right? And his anger, he's angry at the mercy that the father is bestowing upon the younger brother. 
Now, why? The reason that the older brother, the one who has lived a righteous, quote-unquote, life, we would call it a moralistic life, is angry at the father, is because he has lost sight of the truth that he is as dependent upon the father's mercy as the younger brother is. He has a very self-righteous position that he's in. And in his self-righteousness, he has believed that he has earned what the father has gifted to him. This is mine. This is mine. I deserve the favor. I've earned the favor. I earned the mercy. He's done nothing to deserve it. And the father, in essence, has to remind the older brother, wait a minute. First of all, son, it's all mine. And I am blessing you. And I am also blessing your younger brother. Your younger brother fell out of alignment with my heart because of his rebellion. And he had to be poor in spirit and repent to come back. You also are out of alignment with my heart because of your self-righteousness. The scripture says in another place that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. When the younger brother humbles himself, he received his father's grace. It's actually a promise in scripture. Dad, I'm poor, I'm, I'm depraved, I'm wicked, I've done, forgive me, I don't deserve it. Exactly. You don't deserve anything. I love you. Here is my grace. The brother is demanding it. You owe me grace. You owe me blessing. You owe me favor. And the father is saying, son, you're actually opposing my heart. As much as your brother did in his wickedness, you're doing in your self-righteousness. And that word, oppose, is a very important word. It's a strong warning to Christ followers. Okay? Because the word oppose is an active word. So it doesn't, the Bible doesn't say God gives grace to the humble and doesn't like the proud. God gives grace to the humble and the proud just get on their, his nerves. God gives grace to the humble and he works against the prideful. The father in this story would look at the older son the one who has kind of kept his nose clean all these years. And he would say to him, son, here's the problem. You believe lies. Your brother believed that the further he was away from me, the happier he would be. You believe that what I give you isn't a gift. You believe you've earned it. So you believe that if I withheld mercy from your brother, that somehow you would be deserving of that mercy. You want me to be punitive with him. You believe that if I took a pound of flesh out of your brother's hide, it would somehow satisfy your heart. If I took vengeance on him, it would satisfy you. You believe that, that because you've kind of paid the tax for all this, that your brother owes you. But son, that belief system is going to ruin your heart and consume your soul. Son, you'd actually be better off if you rid yourself of all bitterness, anger, malice, brawling, and slander. And if instead of believing those false lies as a path to happiness and satisfaction, son, what if I told you that you'd actually be happy if you were meek? Blessed are the meek, son. See, you, 
You have the power and authority to take a pound of flesh out of your brother's hide. In fact, you have a case for it. It's a very logical case. But what if you restrain that power and responded to him differently like I am? Happiness is in meekness, son. Son, what if you were merciful? Because blessed are the merciful. What if you looked at how I am bestowing mercy on your brother and you followed my example instead of leaning into your desire for vengeance? Son, blessed are the pure in heart. You don't even realize it because you're pure in action. You think that you're pure in heart. But see, everything your brother did with his body, you've done with your heart. And you are as out of sync with me as he was. He just did it on the outside. You're doing it on the inside. That's why you can look at a woman lustfully and have an affair with her. That's why you can hate somebody and it's like you killed them. It's like that, son. You also need to adjust your heart and bring it into alignment with me. And by the way, blessed are the peacemakers. See? You and I, son, we're not, we're not actually at peace with each other right now. Because you want me to view your brother the way that you view your brother. And in order for you to be at peace with me, you need to adopt my view of your brother. Let me define your focus. Bless are the peacemakers. And by the way, son, you're going to get an extra reward. You know how come? Because blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You're right. You've paid for your brother's sin. You took, you took heat for it, right? You did have to do double the work because your brother was over here being a diphthong. Now you have the burden of forgiveness on you because he's asked for it. You've never sinned, but you have to get up and decide to forgive him every day. You have to work against bitterness and you have to work at forgiving as you've been forgiven and loving as you've been loving. He caused the harm, but now you carry the burden of godliness to return to his life. And that's a lot like persecution, but guess what? You'll be blessed because of it and your brother has come home. See how that works? So these statements... These statements aren't these ethereal ideas that kind of float around out there that we think about once in a while. They're always going to show up in a relationship. And our temptation to pull off the heart of God and to, is always going to have people tied to it somehow. And God is looking at both of these boys and saying, son, you're out of sync with me because you're in straight up rebellion and now you're covered in moral filth. You're in the pig pen. And then he's looking at his other son and saying, son, you're not in sync with me because you're self-righteous. You're prideful. And you've forgotten that everything you see me giving to your brother, I actually have to give to you just the same. Right? And when each of you align with me, which is what the eight statements help us to do, align with the heart of God, that's the key to aligning with each other. It's kind of like if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you'll love your neighbor as yourself, right? Your relationship with me will adjust and correct your relationships with each other, right? See how it plays out? So those statements get skin on them, and they play out, and they show up in our relationships with each other and with our relationship with God, okay? All right, let's turn them into life hacks. Here they are, five useful things Jesus is teaching us here in this 
story and with the, the implementation of these, these statements. Number one, five useful things Jesus is teaching us. Number one, God is waiting, not begging. God is waiting, not begging. First useful thing he's teaching us. This is a very important thing. So you have a, a heavenly father who delights in mercy, who's eager to forgive, okay? But the position of the heart of the younger son is the key, all right? When we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. When we're poor in spirit, recognize the need for God. When we grieve the distance we cause in our relationship with God, not with thirst for righteousness, it's not when we go back to God and say, I want more. So if the son had come home and he had come home blaming other people for his sin. Yeah, dad, I tell you, man, there's just these people and uh, it's their fault. So uh, I'm home. The father would not have run out to greet him because there's no broken spirit and contrite heart. If he had come home and said, uh, Father, I'd like for you to enable me some more. Yeah, Dad, I was just like, you know, just one move away. If you could just give me like another goat, I'm pretty sure I could turn it. See? The son did not come home blaming. Yeah, Dad, you know, if you and Mom had just been better parents, then uh, I would have made different decisions, you know. Uh, the fact that you let me suck my thumb till I was 16, it, it probably just scarred me emotionally. Right? So there's a confession. There's a humility. God waits for us. God is not an enabler. God is not a beggar. He's eager to forgive and he delights in mercy. And he freely and readily extends that to the heart that is broken and contrite. All right? God is waiting, not begging. Here it is, life hack number two. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, so mercy is mercy. That's a paraphrase, actually, of a Bible verse. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, so mercy is mercy. That's kind of God's problem. Here's the deal, guys. We would, we would alleviate so much angst in our relationship with God. What I'm about to say is very profound. Ready? You're probably going to want to get a tattoo of this, I would imagine. Right? We would alleviate so much in our, uh, of angst in our relationship with God. Ready? Here it is. If we would let God just be God. The father looks at the older son who is angry with the father and in tension with his brother because the older son wants to be the one who defines who gets mercy and who doesn't. And the scripture says, God says, I, I let it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I, I'll handle it. I'll handle it. I have a plan and I have a purpose and I have a reason. I might be blessing that unrighteous person because I'm drawing them to me with my kindness. I, I might have, I have things going on that you have no concept. So it's, I'm gonna bless people you don't think deserve to be blessed. I'm gonna be merciful to people that you don't think deserve to be merciful. And why don't you just relax and let me do that? And it would bring down your angst with me considerably. That also changes your relationship with people. Because when I see somebody being blessed and I think I deserve it and they don't, I have no joy for them. I have resentment toward them, right? Wait a minute. I don't smoke, drink, chew, day girls to do. I don't cheer for Michigan. I go to church. I volunteer. I tithe. And I got laid off. This guy's an 
idiot. And he got the promotion? I know what he's like on the business trip. I know how much smoke he blows. You've got, God, you've got to be kidding me. I deserve. That's all a false teaching that God's job is to make your life happy and easy. No, no, no. And so what the father says to the older brother, in essence, is, son, you're the object of my mercy too. And when I give mercy to someone that you don't think deserves it, it doesn't mean I took it from you. Your life is playing out the way that I want your life to play out. And so is theirs. So when they receive a blessing, be happy for them. Celebrate that, love them, enjoy that. And when life doesn't play the way that you thought it should play, relax. It's not that I've ripped you off. It's that there's a different plan that I have for you than you had for yourself. So it's going to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Mercy is mercy, but that's me. So relax in my love for you. Enjoy and be happy for them and be confident that I'm also going to take you where I want you to go, okay? Life hack number three. Hoarders are never happy. Hoarders are never happy. It's true. You ever watch a TV show? They're never happy. They're always like, I just need one more cat, right? They're just never happy. You can't can't please a hoarder, right? This is the way it is, okay? And this is true of our relationship with God. Okay? There's this false mindset out there that the key to my spiritual happiness is taking in, taking in, taking in, taking in, taking in. And it's a lie. In fact, I, I won't even entertain it. If you come up to me in the, in the lobby after services and you say, Pastor Jeff, uh, I just don't know if I can say it grace. How come? Oh, I'm not being fed. I'm not being fed. I need to grow spiritually. I will look at you and I will say, that's your problem, right? What should I do to be fed? I don't know. Why don't you go burn off some of what you've been eating and it will give you a whole new appetite, see? My prayer life is stale. Oh, really? Step out on faith. What should I do? Give away everything that you have to the poor and you will pray like crazy. <laughs> My walk with, I'm in a dry place spiritually. Oh, that's a bummer. What should I do? Go tell somebody about Jesus. Like literally tell them about Jesus and your spiritual life will come alive. I don't want to do these things. I don't know what to tell you then. <laughs> right? Here's the deal, guys. Your life in Christ only becomes fun and exciting as you export it. See? Happy. You look at the eight statements, they're all about you giving away. It's not happier those who receive mercy and read books on mercy and study mercy and learn how to say mercy in the Greek. It's happier those who are merciful. And I only understand God's mercy as I give God's mercy. I only understand God's grace as I extend God's grace. I only understand God's forgiveness as I forgive others as I've been forgiven. I only understand God's love as I love radically like I have been loved radically. Hoarders are never happy. And if you want to make yourself miserable spiritually, keep it all for yourself. 
If you want to come alive and vibrant and have the truths of Scripture be real in your life, give it away. And it's the key. It's what the eight statements are doing. It's much more about what's going out than what's coming in. Fourth life hack. Ready? The pig pen can clear your mind. The pig pen can clear your mind. There's only two things that are going to happen in the pig pen. You got two options in the pig pen. Number one, you can starve to death in the pig pen. You can starve to death in the pig pen. Okay? So when you run to the pig pen, and you're covered in the pig pen, you can stay there, and you will starve to death in it. The other option in the pig pen, ready? Is you can come to your senses. The pig pen, the Bible says that the law of God's written on our heart. Why is it written on our heart? It's written on my heart so that I know that I'm in the pig pen. The reason that it's miserable in the pig pen it's not because God has cursed you and condemned you to the pig pen. It's so that you can come to your senses and cry out to God and get out of the pig pen because you were never created to live in it. Okay, so when we run to the pig pen, you can go there and you can stay there and you will die there. I'm just being honest with you. There's a verse in the Bible, the old King James said it this way. The old King James says, uh, your, be sure that your sins will find you out, right? You can live in sin. You can live in moral filth. You can live away from God, and they will find you out. It will catch up with you. My mom used to say that verse to me all the time. I'd come home in different states of sobriety, and she would say, where you been? I've been at the library. <laughs> Doing what? learning about Jesus. It was the church library, mom. And she was old Phyllis. She'd look at me and she'd go, Jeffrey, don't call me Jeffrey, by the way. Jeffrey, your sins will find you out. And what that meant was, God knows, and I strongly suspect, your sins will find you out. You cannot keep a secret. You know anybody's had an affair and gotten away with it? You know anybody's cheated in business and gotten away with it? Not forever. The pig pen catches up with us. Life apart from God catches up with us. You will die in it. See? And when you live in that sin, it will destroy you. And you think you have a secret. But God knows what actually happened on that mission, on that, on that business trip. Maybe that mission trip too. That'd be awkward. <laughs> right? God knows. God knows what your week was like. God knows the history that you erased on your computer. God knows the white lie you told to the customer to get them to buy the product they didn't need. God knows that guy at the office that makes your heart pitter-patter, who's not your husband, but you always take the file to his desk. God knows the pig pen. And if you live there, guys, I'm just being honest with you. Your sin will find you out. You will destroy your life. You will destroy everyone you love. Everything that you've ever given yourself to, every hope that you have, every dream that you've desired, you can live in the pig pen and all those things will rot with you there. 
That's option. That's an option. Or you can come to your senses because you weren't created to live in the pig pen. And this is the fifth life hack. When I'm in the pig pen, a real viable option for me is to come home. You don't have to live there. See? Jesus died to rescue you from the pig pen. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to the world so that you're stuck in the pig pen. He came to the world so that the world through him might be safe, so we can get out. There's a way of escape. I'm mired by sin, but I don't have to live that way. It's just where I'm at right now. I have this secret in my life. I don't have to live by that secret. I can confess it. I can bring it into the light. I can walk away from it. I can go home. And I can live as the child of God I was created to live at. People who are in the pig pen are in the pig pen because they have chosen to stay there. But that's not the only choice. And we can come home. And one of the things that the pig pen can do is it can bring us to our senses. I've been by myself and on the road tempted to go into the pig pen. Nobody would ever know. And God, the Holy Spirit of God will pause and give me a stop and say, wait a minute, is this moral filth worth your family? If you had to look Heidi in the eye and tell her you did this, if your children knew, you will destroy your life, Jeff. You will destroy everyone that you love. You will destroy thousands of people because you believe that happiness is being away from God. Why don't you just come home? And I have to reach for the eight statements. God, you're right. What was I, what was I thinking? What was I about ready to do? And God will let you come to your senses. He'll give you these moments of clarity so that you can move your life in a direction that's counterintuitive because the pig pen sounds like a blast. But the blessed live over here in the relationship we were created to be in all along. So come home. And when you come home with a broken and a contrite and a humble heart, The Father will run out to get you. And he'll forgive you, and he'll restore you. See how it works? So these eight statements are huge, huge. And when we lock into them, and we lock them into our life, they literally redirect the decisions and the ways that we would move. And we wind up with a happy life and a satisfied soul because we're aligned with God. And when we're aligned with our heavenly father, guess what happens? We line up with our neighbors. We line up with the people that are around us as well. I asked the band to come out and as they settle in, guys, why don't we just uh, pray? Let's just steal a few quiet moments and do that. And listen, I just challenge you. you. You may have sin that you need to confess. You know the secret that you're keeping? The one that you just thought of? You need to confess that to God. 
And you may need to confess that to a brother or a sister in Christ, to a real life group leader, a pastor, a spouse, I don't know, your parents. Get out of the pig pen before it kills you. You'll starve to death there. Come home. And maybe you're in the position of the older brother. So it's not the secret that you're keeping. It's the resentment that you're keeping. You know that person you can't stand? That one that you don't really want to forgive? The one that you're kind of mad at God because he hasn't hit him with a bolt of lightning yet? That person? It's your dad. It's your friend. It's your ex. It's a, you know the person? The one that you just put a name to? Releasing that. I want to be merciful. A peacemaker. Pure in heart. God, forgive me. Help me. See how that works? So would you give those things over to God? In all of it, allow Christ to align our hearts with his. And then the relationships will kind of care for themselves as we go. Would you think about it? Would you pray about it? Give God that freedom, even today.